It's Valentine's Day this weekend, which of course means chocolates, flowers, seven somewhat innocent men being lined up against the brick wall of a garage and Tommy gun to death. You didn't think I was going to get too sappy, do you? It's almost Valentine's Day, which only means one thing. This week, we're talking about the mob. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. I'm sure lots of other podcasts are doing romantic lover's tales, but just not my style. I confess, this week is probably a little bit more of a silly take on things, because there's very little academic history to this. Uh, I'm going to certainly be talking about some cemeteries and some interesting history on some of them. But there's not an academic deep dive into mafia graves that you can really make. But I think it's kind of a fun one. And it's certainly things that, at least from the research that I did, I am not the only one who was interested in this. There is a perpetual and enduring fascination with the mob. And you can make this argument because the fact is we're still making films about it. We're still making television shows about it. It's something that is continuously reinvented. You know, the thing is, too, is that in so many ways, mafia stories are American dream stories. If you've read Mario Puzo's original novel, The Godfather, which was published in 1969, you know, he starts it with a quote from Honoré de Balzac saying that... Behind every great fortune, there's a crime. And we know now that a lot of those crimes are nicely packaged up and are quite white collar, but I think that there's something enduring about mafia stories. And they are also true stories. And granted, there are a lot of tragic tales (laughs) uh, which end in gunfire and puddles of blood, But there are also these figures who, strangely enough, seem to live long and relatively healthy lives. Um, I will confess, I come from a mob town. When I first moved to Atlanta, I can remember somebody having a conversation with me because the podcast Crime Town had just come out. And they asked me, you know, is all of that true? And I just remember looking at them and saying, oh, it's all true and more. And growing up, I didn't really think about it. Ryland is a town, or it's a state, feels like a town sometimes, but it's a state with tons of Italians. My mother worked in North Providence. North Providence, I'm sure it's not 100% Italian, but sometimes I feel like it is. She worked at a Catholic hospital. We weren't Italian, but pretty much everybody else we knew was. And it is such a cultural touchstone. Um, I'm still bitter about the lack of good Italian food. As I was doing the research for this, I actually got a craving for Italian egg biscuits. And uh, I had to make them myself because there's no such thing as a good Italian bakery in Atlanta. Thank goodness. At least we have good Jewish delis. But Italian food, not even worth it. So 
to me, this is very much the story of where I grew up. It's very much the story of the people that I know. Rhode Island still, by and large, is run by the mob. It's a thing. Um, Organized crime is probably not the same that it was 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Uh, I, I would say that the golden age of crime has passed, but in many ways, it's still a mob town. So I'm going to start with the beginnings. I'm going to talk about the Costa Nostra, and I'm going to talk about some of the places where people tend to congregate, because there are a few cemeteries that you can literally call mob graveyards, because they have become popular. And I don't know if it's something necessarily that there is a universal factor. There are a couple of things that you can talk about. The first of all is your nationality. We tend to think of Italian-Americans when we think of the mafia, but certainly it is not unique. The Irish mob, um, you certainly have Jewish members of the mafia. Those are going to be the ones I'm mainly focusing on, but for the most part, you have Irish and Italian Catholics. So they tend to be focused on Catholic cemeteries. Faith is very closely tied to the mafia. It's very closely tied to cultural tradition. And when you talk about the burial places, you really can't separate them out. And that's the thing, too. You're, you don't hear about um, a lot of progressive mafia figures being cremated and, you know, looking for green burial. Their burials are very much tied in with their cultural tradition. And what you need to understand is that particularly for Italian-Americans, the way that you bury your dead and the way you honor your dead is incredibly important. It is a cultural touchstone. And if you have never been to a predominantly Italian-American cemetery, I can say that even if you look at them like right next to it, I can remember going to an Italian-American cemetery in New Jersey which was part of like a little cluster of all Catholic cemeteries. And there were Eastern Europeans, there were Irish Catholics, there were Italian Catholics. There was a number of these small cemeteries right next to each other. And the scale and the grandeur and the elaborateness of the monuments in the Italian-American cemetery compared to the others. Now, these were people who were living all in the same area. It wasn't like there was a huge discrepancy in where they came from or the type of jobs that they worked. They were all in the same area. But you could certainly see that there was a big cultural tradition that separated out these groups ethnically, even within their burial practices. And Catholic churches, particularly in urban areas, are almost always national parishes. They're very closely tied to ethnic groups so that even in close proximity, you will have an Italian parish, you will have an Irish parish, you will have a Polish parish. This tends to reflect itself in their cemeteries. Now, in some places that have large archdiocesan cemeteries, particularly places like Chicago and New York, both of which we'll be talking about today, this manifests a little bit differently, but you can still certainly see different trends. So the term mafia, as we consider it today, has its origins primarily in Sicily. It's considered to be a Sicilian word, and it appears in the United States in terms of like regular parlance starting in like the late 19th century. I saw references to as early as the 1870s, possibly later. What I think we definitively can say is that the true rise of the mafia in America 
coincides with prohibition. The restrictions placed because of the Volstead Act lead to a huge opportunity for organized crime. When we say organized crime, what do we mean? Well, obviously bootlegging was a big part of it in the 1920s, but there are a couple of things that are kind of bedrock. Gambling, bookmaking, and things like that are going to be the bare minimum baseline, but also racketeering. Protection money is kind of integral. The idea that you come to control a neighborhood by controlling all of the other vendors, who most of them are doing legitimate business, and you demand protection money. Embezzlement, racketeering, all of these things start to add up. And this is why it is organized crime, because you have a network of people, usually within a family structure, that carry this out. Now, here in the United States, the sort of universally acknowledged father of the modern Cosa Nostra is um, Salvatore Lucky Luciano. And Lucky Luciano, um, if you are not familiar with him, um, was born in Italy in 1897. And he is considered to be the first official boss of the Genovese crime family the father of modern organized crime. I want to start with Lucky Luciano just because he is interesting because he builds the network through what so many of these other characters will build. I also want to start with him because he is sort of not the first, but he is at the center of what I would call the Mafia Cemetery. So if you are going to save your pennies and you want to go on a little mob cemetery vacation, there is one cemetery that you have to visit. And that is St. John's in Queens. Now, St. John's, while its name might uh, not speak to anything particularly sexy, um, as I said, is definitively the Mafia Graveyard. It is in Middle Village, Queens. And this started off life as a farm owned by the Mills family in the 1870s. And then John Laughlin, who was the first bishop of the Archdiocese of Brooklyn, decided that they needed to expand and build another Catholic cemetery. And the reason for this was that um, the existing cemetery for the Brooklyn Diocese, Holy Cross in Flatbush, was filling up. And he knew they weren't ready for it quite yet, but they would. So it was consecrated November 27th, 1881. And as Holy Cross filled up, it became popular because obviously it was new and shiny and there was plenty of room so that if you wanted to buy a large family plot, you could do that and you could plan ahead. It has grown to about 190 acres today. Um, There were two expansions, 1933 and then again in 47. Um, I found a neat little hand-drawn map that kind of showed where the stuff was acquired from. Another big draw of St. John's was that between 1947, which was when the last expansion happened in 1951, they built the cloister. And the cloister at the time was the only indoor mausoleum in like the greater New York Catholic cemeteries area. So it was kind of like a new attraction um, 
if you look at kind of the history of cemeteries, and I haven't done an episode on this, but I would love to, um, this is the golden age of community mausoleums. There is a rise in them, and they are seen as like a super new, attractive, sexy option. Um, if you know anything about them today, they are far less sexy because most of them are falling apart because they threw these things up. They were prefab. They look a lot like the townhouses and condominiums that they're putting up all around Atlanta right now. Um, and I'm sure probably in your city as well, they were kind of big box construction and not terribly well maintained. And so as a result, you have a lot of these community mausoleums now, which are condemned and you can't even go in. But I digress. So that was one of the main draws, and they continued to gain popularity throughout the 20th century, um, so that in 1953, they went ahead and they built a chapel, which if you see pictures of this, I was actually very impressed because it's quite an elaborate chapel. It's beautiful. Um, Joseph Matthew was the architect. It was built by Viet and Company. Um, And if I didn't know better, I would say it was far older. Um, The interior in particular has these beautifully elaborate carved and painted rafters. Um, it's It's a lovely little chapel, really. Now, one of the most interesting things I found about St. John's was the fact that when it was originally organized, there was a special act of the New York legislature which essentially set up a cemetery corporation. I think that when Laughlin saw the need, he saw that the population was only going to continue to grow. And he had observed some of the mistakes that the New York Archdiocese had made. Um, like if you look at places like Calvary, in, um, which is also in Queens, you know, Calvary had to expand four times. The different sections are not connected. They were management issues. Ashley and I actually talked about Calvary two weeks ago when we read that account of the horrible conditions that the gravediggers worked in. And if you recall, one of the things that the gravediggers talked about was they praised the Bishop of Brooklyn and his work over in Flatbush and the fact that he paid his workers $2 a day. So I think Laughlin was pretty savvy. And so he petitioned the legislature to separate out the cemeteries. And so while the archdiocese controlled them for much of their history, in 2007, they made the decision to transfer it from a archdiocesan cemetery office over to the actual corporation. And so now St. John's is the head of not just its own work, but um, also Holy Cross and Flatbush, Mount St. Mary and Flushing, um, and both St. Charles and Resurrection Cemeteries, which are in Farmingdale, Long Island. Keep in mind, both Brooklyn and Queens are also on Long Island. We don't tend to think of them as being on Long Island, but they are. So essentially, these are the Long Island Catholic cemeteries. Um, But because Calvary is much older, it's still part of New York. When you get into that kind of metro area, it all gets kind of confusing. Now, how did St. John's become the Mafia Graveyard? In short, I have no idea. I honestly don't. Um, There are so many of these mobsters who are all buried at St. John's. If you run down the list, you know, it's obviously Lucky Luciano, um, Salvatore Marzano, 
Maranzano, excuse me. Um, Carlo Gambino is actually buried in the cloister. You can go kind of go on and on, ending with the sort of modern mobster John Gotti, who was buried there following his death in 2002. So I don't know if it's something where there was a precedent set or if it had to do with where these individuals lived. But also I could say, so going back to Lucky Luciano, I know I started with him and kind of drifted off. Lucky Luciano is an interesting guy because you can't really talk about Lucky Luciano without talking about Meyer Lansky. Meyer Lansky was born in Belarus in 1902 and he was essentially the mob's lawyer. Obviously, his, as his name suggests, he was a Jewish gentleman. Um, but he not only handled the financial side of much of the mafia's work in the Gambino crime family, but also did the legal wheeling and dealing. And perhaps nowhere is this more evident than when Lucky Luciano was facing major, major charges. And... At this point, on the eve of World War II, Meyer Lansky makes a deal for Lucky Luciano to provide service to the armed forces in the form of naval intelligence. And this is essentially a get-out-of-jail-free card for him. So he agrees to offer naval intelligence during World War II, and then following World War II, he is deported. And they ship him off to Italy, where he lives out the remainder of his life. And actually, and this is such a mafia thing, I love it. He dies at the airport. He has a heart attack at the airport in 1962 while he is meeting a producer who had flown over from the United States to talk to him about making a movie about his life. Lucky Luciano, to me, has a very typical and in many ways the prototype burial place for mafioso it is a grand mausoleum um with quite a bit of imagery on it um there are inverted torches on either side if you're looking for it you might be a little bit confused because it's actually the lucania mausoleum which is his actual name luciano was an americanization of his name so l-u-c-a-n-i-a it's lucania mausoleum Lovely, very traditional. And mausoleums tend to be extremely popular. Now, this is one of the other trends. And it's not just mausoleums. But what you will see, and I always I found this very interesting, is that you will even see lots of these folks who were big, big deals. You know, kingpins in their own right, being buried in the same plot with the same gravestone as their parents. The multi-generational family aspect of Italian-Americans in particular, again, cannot be overstated. Now, obviously, this being a cemetery podcast, you already know that family plots are a thing. But if you think about the traditional way that wasps do it, where everybody has a very individualized marker, whether it's in the rural cemetery tradition where, you know, everybody has a different marker, whether, you know, you get a statue, you get an obelisk, you get an urn. Or in the later Lawn Park model, where there's still a grand central monument and then there are individual matching markers for each family member, there's still a high level of individualism in these cemeteries. 
Whereas, you know, the Italian American tradition, you know, they might have a grand monument, but it's very much a family image. And I know I've probably mentioned Ken Jackson's book, Silent Cities. It's a tiny little book. It's essentially a cemetery picture book, but I really like it because he addresses a lot of different traditions and reading his section on Italian Americans. It's like the writing is not great, but the pictures tell a lot of stories and he includes multiple examples from both Italy, like old world Italy and Italian American communities here in the U.S. And they show the emphasis on things like ceramic portraits and the ceramic portraits, how there are multiple of them. Um, there's one, I think it's in Florence, that has 13 family members and every family member has a ceramic portrait. These multi-generational elaborate monuments are something that I cannot just pin on Italian Americans though. Because obviously I just mentioned that this was a tradition in Italy. I can also say when I was in Australia two years ago, the Italian portions of, say, Rookwood Cemetery outside of Sydney, they display some of the same trends, the same scale, the same design that you see here in the U.S. They had the corner on the black granite market before anybody else started doing it. I will give the Italians that. But I say this because so many of these graves, what I see is I see certain trends. And I don't think that they are mafia trends. I think that they are far more rooted in the cultural tradition. That you show honor and you show respect for the dead by the grandeur and by the level of memorialization. Now, if you also look at the graves in St. John's in Queens, Middle Village... The second thing that comes up, and this is something that I don't see a lot of discussion of, but I'm not really sure how people can ignore it, is the fact that Italian Americans often brought their skills from the old world. The marble carvers, they're all Italian. Stone cutting, masonry, and particular sculpting are all heavily Italian professions and going back to Rookwood when I went to Rookwood before I even got there I got off I had taken the you know the commuter rail out and I had gotten off and I was a little panicked because I thought I was going to have to walk a mile in the blazing heat to get to the entrance of the cemetery but luckily there were side gates but the side street that I went up to to get into the cemetery it was lined with monument dealers and even today, if you go outside of Calvary, or you go outside of St. John's, the monument dealers that are old world monument dealers who have sculpting talent and who are predominantly Italian, they still line city blocks around these cemeteries. And that's one of the reasons that when you go into an Italian American section, they're going to have far more elaborate monuments. It's because they were in the trade. And they had skilled craftsmen who were making these. They had skilled craftsmen who were putting the work into it. Now, often you see very repetitive models and styles. Not necessarily a bad thing. You know, there are a lot of tropes. So you see a lot of the Virgin Mary. You see a lot of St. Joseph, who is the patron saint of Italy. St. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus together. 
So a lot of them are going to be larger scale. You see a lot of reproductions of things like the Pieta, for example. Um, but again, it's because they were skilled sculptors. There's your background on the Mafia graveyard. I'm going to swing away for a second, and it's because I want to take us to Chicago, and I want to talk about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, which is the reason that I chose this topic to begin with. And there's a couple of interesting facts. So if you are not familiar, on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 1929, at 2122 North Clark Street in the Lincoln Park neighborhood, this was a small garage. There were seven members of the North Side Gang, which the North Side Gang was led by Bugsy Moran. They were a predominantly Irish gang. Not all Irish. There are some folks in there who are not. Some Jewish gentlemen, some German gentlemen. But it is a predominantly Irish gang. Now, they were there preparing to drive up to Detroit to get some bootlegged liquor. While they are in the garage, one of them, a gentleman named John May, who was a mechanic, was fixing one of the trucks. I believe he was changing a tire. While they were in there, these seven gentlemen, this is around 10, 10.30 in the morning, they all kind of show up, suddenly are burst in by four gentlemen, two dressed in plain clothes, two dressed as police officers, who order them to line up against the wall. They are armed, two of them with Tommy guns, submachine guns, two of them with shotguns, at which they proceed to slaughter all seven men. Basically spraying back and forth with these submachine guns, and then several of the sets of remains are very badly mutilated with shotguns to the face. This is well known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and it is widely believed that Al Capone is the one who ordered this to take out his primary rivals within the city. Okay, so let's step back for a second. These seven individuals, who are they? So the first two are the Gusenberg brothers, Peter and Frank. They are both enforcers for the Northside gang. Albert Kachelik, who was the second in command. Um, He also goes by the name of James Jim Clark. That's kind of his alias. He is the second in command to Bugsy Moran. Adam Heyer, who was a bookkeeper. Reinhard Schwimmer who was a former obstetrician, uh, obstetrician, um, and he was a gambler, mainly dealing with, like, racetracks, so I'm not sure if he was kind of like a bookmaker, too. Albert Weinschenk, and I've seen it, Weinschenk and Weinschenker, um, he ran cleaning and dyeing operations, and then lastly, John May, who I had already mentioned, who was the mechanic, not generally believed to be a member of the gang. He was just kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, Albert Weinschenker, um, he is the reason that Bugsy Moran probably lives. He was dressed very similarly to Moran that day. Moran was on the way to this particular meeting and got a really bad feeling about it and didn't go. 
Weinschenker was dressed almost identically to him, wearing a very similar top coat and similar hat. So it's believed that when they were watching the garage, they thought they had gotten Moran. Um, Moran had the last laugh. Um, he would leave. Um, he eventually would die February 25th, 1957. Um, while he was an inmate at Leavenworth in Kansas. And he, unfortunately, is actually buried there. So he is in the, the, the uh, Leavenworth Penitentiary um, Prison Cemetery. Lung cancer. Seems to have gotten quite a few of these gentlemen. But anyways, so these seven were killed. This crime is still officially unsolved. But if you read the literature, I think it's pretty clear. So... It's generally believed that at least the ringleader and perhaps one of the trigger men was a man named Fred Killer Burke. He was a former member of a gang called Egan's Rats. Charming. Um, And Egan's Rats definitely were in cahoots with um, Al Capone and his friends um, who were operating mainly out of Cicero at this point. Um, When they searched Fred Killer Burke's bungalow, they found... Two Thompson submachine guns, which, surprise, surprise, when they actually did ballistics on them, were the murder weapons. Also, Mr. Burke and his known associate James Ray had, in the past, been observed wearing police uniforms to commit robberies. And it's believed that what they did was that they were able to get away from the scene of the crime for a couple of reasons. First of all, there is a very mind-your-own-business type attitude to this type of crime. Second of all, they led the two men in plain clothes out with their arms above their head, so it looked like that they were arresting them. So the gunfire somehow had, you know, there had been gunfire and they had arrested these two men, so they looked like legitimate police officers. Um... Mr. Burke, one of the reasons that his house was searched is because he killed a cop, um, an officer, Skelly, who had jumped on the running boards of his car and tried to stop him. Um, He shot Skelly. Uh, This was a really low-hanging fruit. They were able to convict him. And so he was sent to prison in Michigan, um, where he died July 10th, 1940, at the age of 47. I did mention that there are some happy endings in these stories. There aren't many. It's worth noting. All right. So that's the history behind this. Let's talk a little bit about the victims. So where are they buried? And I was actually a little surprised. And maybe it's because for the most part, these are lower level enforcers. um, That they're not as much part of that Catholic um, community. Um, but so three of them, the Gusenberg brothers, um, and Reinhard Schwimmer, all are actually buried at Rose Hill, which Rose Hill is one of the nicer north, north side cemeteries, not quite as grand as Graceland, but still like a pretty impressive cemetery. Um, only one is buried in what I would think of as a traditional Catholic cemetery, and that's actually Johnny May, the mechanic. He is is buried in Mount Carmel in Hillside, Illinois, which, if you know your history, you will know that he is actually sharing a cemetery with, dun-dun-dun, none other than Alphonse Capone. I'll talk about Al Capone in a minute. Um, 
couple of others, um, I will say that the most beautiful of all of these was actually um, Albert Kalinchek, the second in command, probably because he was very well off being the second in command of a major gang. He's buried in Irving Park Cemetery, and he has this beautiful rough-hewn granite monument, which I tend to think of as being a very German-American style of monument. But it has this art deco allegorical like figure of a mourning woman it's actually quite sexy there's there's some nipples showing in this um but just beautiful beautiful monument really striking um definitely the one that stands out um adam Heyer, the bookkeeper he was buried in forest home cemetery which i talked about that in the labor episode um Apparently, his dog Highball was present for the shooting, and Highball was tied up. He didn't die, but Highball's barking actually attracted people and let them know that something had happened. And then lastly, um, Albert Weinschenker is buried in Waldheim, um, which Waldheim is right next to Graceland and Rose Hill. It's in the same neighborhood. This was a predominantly Jewish cemetery, um, generally acknowledged to have some of the best collections of ceramic portraits anywhere. Unfortunately, it's in really bad shape and it has been vandalized quite quite strongly, but such is the world. So they were where I started. It's not necessarily the most fascinating story. Like they don't have like this, you know, there was no like one great big funeral for all of these victims and things like that. The real significance behind the St. Valentine's Day Massacre is the fact that it starts the ball rolling, and it's really the beginning of the end for Al Capone. So, we obviously cannot talk about the mob without talking about Al Capone. So, Alphonse Capone, despite his infamy as public enemy number one, um, lives a relatively short life. So he is born on January 17th, 1899, and has a fairly meteoric rise. So he works very closely with Johnny Torrio and is a big driving force behind basically taking control of Chicago in the 1920s. Um, Torrio also lives a decently long life. He, he, he has a pretty good life, uh, Johnny Torrio. Um, Al Capone, obviously known as Scarface because he has a long scar down his face. He is, you know, if you know one mobster, you know Al Capone. But I will say that, like, if you look at his life objectively, so the St. Valentine's Day Massacre happens in 29. He is indicted on charges of tax evasion in 1931, and he will spend the next decade in prison, so for eight years. So from 31 to 39, he will spend in various prisons across the United States, um, probably most noteworthy being Alcatraz, but he also spent some time um, in Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. He spent some time here in Atlanta at the Federal Penitentiary. The reason that Capone is released um, after only eight years in prison, he was sentenced to 11, is because his health is so poor. At this point, he has late-stage syphilis. So keep in mind, 1939, he is 40 years old, and he has late-stage syphilis to the point where he has significant deterioration of his brain function. 
so much so that by 1946, he has the mental capacity of a 12-year-old. Now, the widespread use of penicillin um, for a variety of reasons, but most specifically to treat syphilis, starts in 1942. So Capone is actually one of the first people in the United States to receive penicillin for syphilis. But at that point, once you've reached the tertiary stage of syphilis, it really, there's no going back, um, the damage that it does to your brain. And so he continued to deteriorate. He lived essentially in his vacation home in Florida until he dies of a stroke, which puts him into cardiac arrest um, January 25th, 1947. So right after his 48th birthday. So, you know, this is definitely one of those wages of sin type conversations because Al Capone does not live a happy life. You know, he spends essentially the last almost 20 years of his life either in prison or actively dying and not having any mental capacity. So, uh, really the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, things went downhill quick for him after that. And certainly if you look at the history of the mob, that's pretty evident. Now, Capone is interesting in the world of Chicago cemeteries. Let's swing over and talk about Chicago cemeteries a bit. He's originally buried at Mount Olivet, which obviously is a Catholic cemetery, and he is buried with his father and one of his brothers. One of his brothers had been gunned down um, just a couple years earlier. So he dies in 47. Only a few years later, he, his father, and his brother, the whole family, is moved out, as I already mentioned, to Mount Carmel in Hillside, Illinois. And I I tried to kind of like look up exactly why it happened. The, the main reason is that it seems to be that his mother dies in 1952. And so I think that she had purchased a plot there with the idea that they would all be buried together. Again, the whole idea behind family and having a big family plot. Um, but apparently also there were some problems with vandalism. It was becoming a major tourist attraction. One thing I love about cemeteries is that the the things that we complain about today, about places being tourist attractions and having to worry about vandalism, these things are kind of universal. They've been around forever. Um, we like to think that it's a modern problem, but clearly they were having these problems with Al Capone's grave 75 years ago. I would say that Mount Carmel is a little bit like the St. John's of the Midwest. There are certainly a number of folks who are also buried there. Um, I wouldn't say that it's as popular as St. John's. It could also just be that there are so many cemeteries in Chicago, Catholic cemeteries in particular, and they are all massive. Um, they tend to be a little bit more concentrated in the New York area, so there's less options, but Chicago, I know on Chicago's south side alone, there's something like seven Catholic cemeteries. You know, they're just so prolific that I think that the burials are less concentrated in one place just because there were more options. As opposed to New York where it seemed like they were, like once a place was filled up, you know, like they moved on to the next one. It wasn't like there were multiple ones in use at the same time. So... 
I started to ask myself a couple more questions looking at the history of mafia burials because one of the things is, you know, I know I talk a lot about the way that cemeteries are portrayed in films, in movies, and if you follow along on social media, I sometimes like to gripe about it or I like to post pictures and consider the way that cemeteries are accurately or inaccurately portrayed. But really, mob television, mob movies, more so than any other genre I can think of, except maybe cop dramas, really feature heavily on the cemetery scenes. So much so that I think it it, it almost becomes like part of the plot. So the one that comes to mind, you know, first is obviously The Godfather. And you can't talk about mob movies without talking about The Godfather, released in 1972, as I said, based on Mario Puzo's novel published three years earlier. And if you've seen like the extended version, there's a whole exchange with an undertaker where the undertaker has asked a favor of Don Corleone and Don Corleone makes this deal with him, you know, that someday he will exchange this. And his exchange is to ask for this mortician to restore his son, who has essentially been Tommy gunned to death, so that his mother can, you know, see him at an open casket funeral. And then, of course, there is Don Corleone's funeral scene itself, which is probably one of the most iconic cemetery scenes of any movie ever made. And if you were interested in movie making, it's something that you kind of can't ignore. So it is filmed at Calvary in Queens. And this is something I know I've talked about before. I probably mentioned it two weeks ago when we were reading that quote from Calvary. I know that when we did the Catholic Cemeteries episode way, way back at the beginning of the podcast, I talked about it. Um, So Old Calvary started in 1848. Old Calvary is the first of the four sections known as St. Calixtus. Between 1848 and 1898, there are 644,761 burials. Um, They're doing about 50 burials a day. More than half of those are Irish under the age of seven. Many of them cholera victims, things like that. So it is an incredibly busy cemetery. This is obviously where the scenes are filmed. And one of the things I I absolutely loved um, was that I found some film nerd who literally like went out to Calvary and like tried to like zoom in and read the names and actually pinpointed the exact place that the funeral took place. One of the most interesting, because obviously it's not a real monument. There's a very elaborate, super tall monument with like three angels on it that was just a prop. It wasn't a real gravestone. But one of the most interesting aspects of this that I found was that he actually identified another headstone which had been vandalized. It was a headstone that was like in three parts. And in the movie, you can see the name on the headstone facing towards the camera. And when he found the marker, the name was facing away from where the camera would have been. And it was a headstone in three parts. So somebody must have knocked the top part off. And when they repaired it, they put it on backwards. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It never occurred to me that you could use, you know, film information like that. But it makes perfect sense. 
from everything I've read, it appears that Don Corleone's funeral, which if you look at his headstone in the movie, it actually has the date of his death on it while they are burying him, which is completely unrealistic if you know anything about how cemeteries work. Um, So his date of death is July 28th, 1955 in the movie. Um, It's generally thought that his funeral is based on the death of uh, Tommy Lucchese, who was also known as Three Finger Brown. So he died uh, in July of 1967 of a brain tumor at the age of 67. He lived uh, on Lido Beach, which is a portion of Long Island. If you have seen The Godfather, you know that their quote-unquote compound is on Long Island, though in reality they filmed it on Staten Island. His funeral was massive. There were, you know, thousands of mourners and it was a very liminal space. So you had both criminals and legitimate folks. So, you know, you have pushers and pimps, bookmakers who are right there next to politicians and judges and cops. Um, And it sort of epitomized, you know, the weird in-between space that organized criminals occupy where they deal with legitimate businessmen, they deal with politicians, they often deal with police protection, but they are also criminals, and they're dealing with the criminal element. So I think it's very interesting that, you know, they actually, you know, when Francis Ford Coppola made this movie, he looked at actual mob funerals and used that to translate over. Um, And it's generally, like, I've heard different stories about who Don Corleone as a person is supposed to be based off of, um, from what I can see, it's he's kind of a mashup of Frank Costello and Carlo Gambino. Essentially, you know, sort of like the good criminal who, like, he may be corrupt and he may have even killed, but had sort of bedrock principles. And, you know, he's a family man. He loves his family. And obviously, you know, some of the other people in the movie are based off, I mean, you know, there's no denying Johnny Fontaine is supposed to be Frank Sinatra. Um, Mo Green is supposed to be Bugsy Siegel. You know, like, there are certain people where you can definitely see that they were based on real-life people. But I think it's a good jumping-off point to talk about where these kind of tropes come from, and I think everything has sort of snowballed from there. Most recently, the one that I can think of is actually The Irishman, which... The Irishman, I think, definitely snowballs on this idea of the elaborate funeral. Um, And this is a more recent one. You know, I'm sorry if I ruined anything for you in The Godfather, but, you know, it came out 50 years ago. So (laughs) if you haven't seen it by now, you probably aren't going to. Whereas, you know, The Irishman came out in 2019, so it's a little bit more contemporary. But I don't think I'm going to ruin it for anyone if I reveal that there is an entire sequence of scenes where Frank Sheeran, the subject Irishman, um, who, as they say, painted houses for the Buffalino crime family, is actually shopping for his own funeral. And, you know, he gets into this kind of, like, fun little negotiation over the price of his casket, and a particularly grand casket, and then chooses a place for himself in a community mausoleum, you know, he talks about who he doesn't want to be buried, and it's a particularly grand idea, and... Yeah, so Frank Sheeran is actually dead. Um, he he died, I want to say, like, early 2000s. I can't remember exactly when he died. Um, but he is actually buried in the community mausoleum at Holy Cross Cemetery in Yaden, um, which is right down the street from where I used to live when I lived up in the Philly area. Um, 
I know I talked about Holy Cross as a cemetery. If you saw the presentation that I did for AGS on the influenza epidemic of 1918, and I mentioned it on the influenza epidemic as well, um, it's also probably best known as the burial place in an unmarked grave of the so-called Devil in the White City. After his execution, he was buried um, at Holy Cross as well. So I think that this whole tradition, that there is an awareness as well about the fact that there is sort of this tie between death and memorialization and this kind of like over-the-top celebration. I don't know. It's... Again, it might be a silly episode because I don't have a ton of academic background behind it, but I'm just making observations from what I've seen. So, to wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about my hometown and some of the mobsters I kind of grew up and around. Um, as I said, Rhode Island is a mafia-style town, so I wanted to cover a couple of the the big names from the New England mob as well. I'll start with the big guns. So, can't talk about the New England mob without talking about James Whitey Bulger. So, Bulger was born in 1929. And in 1979, he took over control of the Winter Hill Gang in Somerville, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. And man, Bulger is a bad man. So Bulger has this meteoric crime rise um, throughout the 70s and 80s. Gets himself to the point where he is powerful in the sense that he partially becomes an FBI informant. And there's a lot of back and forth about whether or not he was actually an FBI informant. I think there's pretty ample evidence that he was, but I can see later why they tried to downplay this. So he flees in 1994. He disappears because he is coming down on him. They are accusing him of 19 murders, and he feels them closing in. And so then he disappears. So for much of my life, you know, the mystery of what happened to Whitey Bulger was right up there with what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. Until he was finally arrested at the age of 81 in 2011 in Santa Monica, California with his girlfriend. And you can debate about whether or not his brother Billy, who was big in politics in Massachusetts, knew where he was the whole time. I find it very hard to believe that he didn't. So Bulger finally answers for his crimes. They are able to, I think, definitively convict him of something like eight of the murders. Um, some more were up in the air. Um, but they, they basically, they nail him on all of the murders that they can. And so he goes to prison, you know, life without parole. He's shuffled around through a bunch of prisons, um, in the roughly seven years that he spends in prison. So on October 30th, 2018, he is transferred and he's being transferred to the penitentiary in Hazleton, West Virginia. And he is murdered within hours of being taken into the prison. Now, keep in mind, he is now 89 years old. He is in a wheelchair. 
he was beaten to death, um, beaten, stabbed. Um, I think it's kind of up in the air just exactly what happened to him, but uh, I know there was at least a padlock and a sock involved in it. Um, They basically tore him out of his wheelchair. By the time the guards got to him, his eyes had been gouged out and his tongue was almost completely cut off. He was described as being completely unrecognizable. Let's put it this way. I don't think it was because he stole somebody's commissary. This was definitely a hit, and this was definitely something that came down from his past. And apparently there had been warnings about the fact that if he was moved potentially closer to where he was from, that it would be a lot easier for people to get to him, and that's exactly what happened. So Whitey made his way in a box um, back to Boston. His funeral was held at St. Monica's in St. Augustine, one of the merged parishes in South Boston. And then he was buried at St. Joseph's in West Roxbury. And St. Joseph's is kind of interesting because similar to the story of how St. John's emerged in Queens, St. Joseph's in West Roxbury, 200 acres, is it's one of the largest cemeteries kind of in the greater Boston area. And it developed in the same time as Holyhood, which Holyhood Cemetery in Brookline is probably a little bit more famous because that is where the Kennedys are buried. Now, obviously not the big name Kennedys. These are the somewhat lesser Kennedys. So Joe Kennedy Sr. and Rose are both buried there along with several of their daughters. And that is where President Kennedy and Mrs. Kennedy's son Patrick was buried before he was moved to Arlington. So you have Holyhood, which is the smaller of the two, and then you have St. Joseph's. Again, like it's almost like there are core cemeteries being developed, and they buy this extra land out in the country because they almost anticipate that they're going to need it. And that appears to be what happened with St. Joseph's in Roxbury. But just to prove that even though Holyhood might be the slightly more famous of the two cemeteries, in Boston it's very difficult to tell where the politician begins and the criminal ends because Mr. Bolger is sharing eternity with John Fitzgerald, better known as Honey Fitz, who was Rose Kennedy's father and former mayor of Boston, and let's be honest, a little shady himself. I don't believe he actually got it, so uh, Whitey Bolger, in true mafia style, is buried under the same headstone as his parents, but he did say in an interview right after he was finally arrested in 2011 that if he could pick his epitaph, it would be, quote, I'd rather be in Alcatraz, because he did spend some time there in 1956. I mean, I won't lie, guy was a scumbag, but that's a great epitaph. Which brings me around to my real hometown boy, Raymond Patriarca. Now, Raymond Patriarca is the head of the Patriarca crime family. He is actually originally born in Massachusetts when he is just a young boy. So he's born in 1908. When he's just three or four years old, his father moves them south to Providence, Rhode Island. Now, Patriarca, if you know anything about Rhode Island in the mid-20th century. He's a very polarizing character. Um, Patriarcha, as a mafia leader, is incredibly tough. Um, He was well-known often for 
not trusting people who owe debts rather than collect debts for people he found untrustworthy he would just have them killed um you know was known for having you know telling fathers that they had to kill their sons you know brothers that they had to kill their other sibling he was a tough guy and he definitely ruled with an iron fist and unfortunately patriarcha was almost brought down by whitey bulger and in his attempt to consolidate power you know there's this push and pull patriarcha also is famous for running his business out of the Coinomatic on Atwell's Avenue in Providence, which the Coinomatic was essentially, you know, a storefront for vending machines, cigarette machines, pinball machines. And it kind of lends this, you know, fun little, I mean, I know that, you know, if, if you were ever a Sopranos fan, you know, the whole idea that, you know, they operate out of Satriali's, the butcher shop. I mean, I think that it has this sort of cozy hometown feel about it. And I think that uh, Raven Patriarcha and his little coinomatic operation definitely has that same feeling. Um, Patriarcha very famously stays out of prison um, with the aid of his doctor, which I did read that she, it's, it's a female doctor, actually. She is actually getting, she's in her 70s now that she's retired. She's getting ready to write a book about it. So I'll be very curious to read that um, if and when it comes out. But he dies on July 11th, 1984, and he is buried at Gates of Heaven Cemetery in East Providence, um, which that is one of the two really big, that and St. Anne's in Cranston are the two big Catholic cemeteries in Rhode Island, which Rhode Island, as I know I've said before, has more Catholics per capita than any other state in the United States. It is 35% Catholic. And um, it's almost like he takes a book (laughs) out of the traditional mausoleum design because the Patriarcha mausoleum definitely has echoes of that Lucky Luciana look, though it does have a slightly more modern, um, again, almost art deco design to it. Um, It's very striking. So Patriarcha is buried with his family as well as his first wife. Interestingly enough, though, his second wife was not buried in the mausoleum. She was buried right outside, right next to the mausoleum. And I have read that it was because she was Irish and so that the family never approved of her. And that is the reason that she had to be buried right outside. I'm not sure if it was that or that they didn't approve that he took his second wife, but it's kind of a juicy little tidbit. Um, Overall, I think that there is an underlying cultural fascination with the mob. Um, certainly, like if you look at Whitey Bulger, the New England mob, I mean, that this is, this is the basis not just for the biopic that they did with Johnny Depp, um, which Johnny Depp with those horrible contacts still freaks me out in Black Mass, um, but also largely the character that Jack Nicholson plays in The Departed. You know, all of these stories... And if you think about these stories, almost every one of them has a cemetery scene. And I don't know if it's a metaphor for the underlying danger of a life of crime. I don't know if it's a Catholic guilt thing. Certainly the Catholic Church in and of itself has often been compared to a mafia. Um, You know, 
Andrew Greeley, the very liberal sociologist priest, you know, infamously during the church sex abuse scandal, called the upper levels of the Catholic Church the Lavender Mafia. And you can read multiple examples of this. And just for fun, I will, you know, if I'm going to draw that parallel, I will finish with one of my favorite stories out of Chicago, going back to Chicago. Um, so if you ever wondered about the Catholic Church and the mob, perhaps my favorite story is the story of Frank Calabresi Sr., who was convicted of 13 murders, strangling, cutting throats, just all around terrible, terrible. Um, Frankie Breeze was somehow his nickname. So he was sentenced to life in prison and was sent to prison in Springfield, Missouri. At which point, Mr. Calabrese began to receive regular visits from local priest Eugene Klein. Now, Klein was in his 60s, very quiet, retiring priest, nothing out of the ordinary. And for quite some time, he was one of only two visitors that Calabrese was allowed because they were concerned that he was going to be passing messages to his associates on the outside, um, even though he was from Chicago and had been shipped off to Missouri. So Klein, you know, becomes his confessor. He's visiting regularly. He brings him chocolate. He brings him cupcakes. He hears his confessions. You know, they form like a nice, healthy spiritual bond. At which point in 2011, Calabresi passes him a note under the guise of it being a religious document, which asks the priests to retrieve a rare Stradivarius violin from Calabresi's summer house in Wisconsin. Now, this violin supposedly formerly belonged to none other than Liberace and is valued somewhere to the tune of $26 million. Now, because of his conviction, Calabresi has had all of his assets seized and is essentially broke. So having a $26 million violin in his possession would be a very beneficial thing. Though I'm not really sure how he thought Mr. Klein was going to be able to fence this. But Klein, clearly now on board with the mafia, (laughs) lies to his superiors and says he's going to take care of his sick mother, at which point he goes to meet with mob associates of Calabrese in Chicago at a restaurant called, and I'm not kidding, Zaza's. Like, Zaza Gabor. Needless to say, this does not end well. Mr. Klein apparently calls a realtor and says that he wants to tour the house in Wisconsin, which is now for sale. No dice. The house has already been sold, and so he is refused. And it's at this point that police start to get suspicious, and they eventually arrest him. He pleads guilty and is up for a maximum five years for conspiracy to defraud the government. Now, where's Mr. Calabresi and all that? Well, he dies in 2012, just a year later, at the age of 75. His parents are buried at Queen of Heaven Cemetery in Chicago, another one of the Catholic cemeteries. I don't know if Mr. Calabresi ended up there or he was placed in the penitentiary cemetery as well. But um, 
what I think this goes to show is that crime definitely doesn't pay because he even hooked this poor priest into it. Hopefully the priest gets to live a few more years and uh, learns from his mistakes. But uh, definitely the Catholic Church and the Mafia go together like peanut butter and jelly. So I just ended with that one. It's not really a cemetery story, but it's kind of a fun one to, to end on. So hopefully this leaves you with all kinds of warm and fuzzy feelings this Valentine's Day. If you are curious, unfortunately the garage where the executions happened on the St. Valentine's Day Massacre is no longer standing. It was demolished in 1967. However, some industrious person did salvage the bricks, and you can see the bricks riddled with bullet holes at the Mom Museum in Las Vegas, if any of us can ever travel sometime soon. So if you really are curious, a little bit of a morbid curiosity, you can definitely see the bricks. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, I would ask that you rate and review. A five-star review really does make a difference in how visible I am to people who are looking for new podcasts. It only takes a couple minutes to log in, write a review. Also, follow along on social media, Tomb of the View podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. Follow along, I'll be sharing some other fun stuff, um, little tidbits and extras, Um, some visuals to go along with the stories. A very happy Valentine's Day to you. Get your loved ones a Tommy gun. It's always appreciated. For now, I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tomb of the View.